we're going to be in John chapter 1. We're going to make our way to John chapter 4, as Tim was talking about. And so if you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, if it's whether you're a digital techie on your phone or you're old school like me and love paper, uh, open it up to John chapter 1. If you don't know me super well, one thing about me is that I'm a huge space nerd. Um, I love things about space. I think space is very fascinating. Um, I love the, its vastness and its complexity. Um, it baffles me. It really is kind of mind-boggling if you think about it. Uh, think about something like the Voyager 1 spacecraft that launched off of Earth uh, in 1977 and started traveling 36,000 miles an hour, so super fast and traveled for 35 years before it left our solar system. That's like just our neighborhood, and it took that long to get out. Even if you traveled at the speed of light, <clears throat> it would take you four years to get to the closest star to us. And there's billions and billions of stars in the known universe. And to think that God said, let there be light. And it came screaming into existence at 186,000 miles per second. Wow. Right? That's fascinating all the more. You see, God is huge. God is fascinating. He's worthy of every single ounce of glory that we give to him. And the fact that Jesus, being God, came and lived on this earth to fulfill his mission, to bring God glory and to save lost people from sin and give them eternal life, that's amazing, isn't it? So that's what we're going to look at today here in John chapter 1 and make our way to John chapter 4, is the glory of God through the redemption of humanity. More specifically, we're going to learn how Jesus lived to accomplish his mission, what he calls the will of the Father, a.k.a. the glory of God through the redemption of humanity. Let us pray, and then we're going to read God's word together, all right? Father, we love you. Um, God, we are here to learn about you, to learn how to serve you, to proclaim your excellencies, Lord. God, as we open your word, would it cut bone from marrow? Would it rest in our heart? Would it convict us? Would it encourage us and uplift us? God, I pray for every single word that comes off of my lips, Lord, those that do not stand firm and are not true to your scripture, Lord, would they fall on deaf ears? And those that are true, God, would they light a fire within us. God, thank you for this opportunity to be together. Thank you for living in a place where we can open your word together freely um, and learn about you. Um, would you be in this place? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this, mi this mission that Jesus is on starts at the beginning of time, or even before, and it starts at the beginning of John chapter 1. So let's read it together. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world, uh, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we look at this, we're going to kind of, we're going to walk into some theological woods here. And they're deep and they're thick, but we're going to go into them together. Um, Stick with me and we're going to come out the other side with some real cool things and some application for us um, as we go through these. So we see that the word was with God, with God, and was God. So how do we do that? Better put, the word is God. The wording here in the Greek expresses uh, that in the beginning, or better put, what continually was. So if you could read the opening of John chapter 1 and say, what continually was the word was with God and was God. This word that was with God, it stood in power. And it stood at the beginning in wisdom and in perfect active relationship with God. That's what the verb tense tells us. Active relationship with God. And this word that was forever with God... Well, it is God. The text clearly shows that the Word is fully God, but also that God is not only the Word. So John opens up his book with some really deep theological Trinitarian speech here. And if you do your reading this week, you're going to see by the end of John chapter 1, the Trinity in in full, Father, Son, and Spirit in the same thing um, at Jesus' baptism. So John opens up his book with this. And we can see clearly that the Word was with God, God's eternal companion, but that the Word also was God, God's own self. Here we have a a commentator by the name of C.K. Barrett. He says that the deeds and words of the Word are the deeds and words of God. The complexity of the Trinity, man, it's, it's beautiful. And if you think about it, if we could fit God into our, into our minds, right, into our little box, into our finite thing of thinking, if we could fit him in there, would he hardly even be a God worth worshiping at all? I mean, God is big. He's so big, and he's so awesome. You see, I get to experience uh, quite frequently my level of finite understanding of God with my son, Ridge, uh, pretty much all the time. He's three years old, and he asks a set of questions that eventually will come to the conclusion of, I don't know, buddy. Uh, We always get there. I'm going to play one of these out for you, okay? Daddy, yes, Ridge, why don't you do the diaper slap dance with me anymore? That's a a real thing at my house, and unfortunately, I helped him create it, uh, and I'm not going to demonstrate it today. But why don't you do the diaper slap dance with me anymore? Well, Ridge, Mommy doesn't think it's very funny. <laughs> well, why not? Well, it could be considered inappropriate. Why? Well, God gave some people much better moral compasses than others, Ridge. <laughs> why is that? Well, because he makes each one of us unique, and we're all special in our own ways. Why? Well, because that shows the diversity and complexity of God. Why? Because God is complex and amazing, Ridge. Why? Because he is. Why, Dad? I I don't know, buddy. (laughs) So, you see, God is bigger. He's bigger than our biggest thoughts. And we can never dig down to the depth of him, right? My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, God tells us. 
So we can never contain him in our minds, even if we tried. But you can know him, and you can have active relationship with him. And we see this because of verse 14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is an event that's more important and bigger than the creation of the universe. And through all the miracles of the Old Testament and through God's leading of his people and the words of the prophets even, none compare to this. Jesus, in the flesh, he was not bringing a prophetic word. He is the word. And what John's getting at here in a deeper sense is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh, in the flesh, God's self-disclosure is here with us, seen In uh, verse 14, when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, some of your translations might say made his dwelling among us. Uh, More literally translated, the Greek verb actually means that the word uh, pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent amongst us. For those of you that have been doing your Bible initiative readings, if you remember probably back in February, uh, in Exodus, right? The tabernacle and the tent of meeting. What were those for? It's for God to dwell with his people. So by using this term, John calls to mind the tabernacle where God met with Israel before the temple was even built. Because this, this is God, the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting, and of the temple. He's here. Jesus, God in the flesh, dwelt among us in perfect glory, full of grace and full of truth. The glory of God, this, the biggest concept of, exi- of, of existence imaginable, he became flesh. He said, I'm going to go to this broken world with this broken people. And I'm going to walk amongst them. What's that do for you? What's that do in your heart? To think a, a concept of a being bigger than I can imagine, than I could even fathom. He said, I'm going to come and be with you so that you can be with me. This is what we see here. And if we want to see something of glory, sure, we can look at something like the eclipse from a couple weeks ago, and even the slightest sliver of light, right, that was left, still lit up everything. It wasn't until all of the sun was covered that it was totally dark. Jesus shines a great bright light. And you want to see glory at an infinitely greater level than that eclipse, you look at the face of Jesus. And we know that the Word, that is Jesus, that He is God, full of grace, full of truth, right? Verse 14. Now, sandwiched between these two uh, verses of the Word being God, of using the Word in verse 1 and then in verse 14, is a word that's used seven times to describe Jesus. And it's light. In Jesus, you find two things in verse 4, and they complement one another. You find life, and you find light. In the creation account, which a lot of this language mirrors, and you're going to see that in your reading this week when you read Genesis and then move on to John, you're going to see that God called forth light, and it was his first creative act. Because as it were, life makes li- light makes life possible. 
And John asserts that life and light are in him, in Jesus. See, because Jesus is the source of light, both spiritual and eternal, and also here and now and physical. He's the source of life and light. And this is good news, right? This is news for all people, verse 12 tells us. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, all. It's good news for everybody. And verse 5 shows us that it is good news because Jesus has overcome. That the light has overcome the darkness. There is no battle here in limbo. There's no wondering which way this is going to go. Who might win this battle? Is it going to teeter-totter and in the fourth quarter we might see an upset? No, it's over. At the cross of Calvary, it was over. And it continues to be over to this day and into eternity and to forever. When there's darkness and light shines in, the darkness flees. And if you're somebody here today that's been wrestling around with some darkness in your life, uh, that has a battle and says, man, I just, I'm having a hard time overcoming this. My life's dark. I've been struggling to find purpose. I've been struggling to find life, right? To find life. If you're one of those folks whether you know how you got here or not, and you know that there's darkness in you, I'm here to tell you that there is one name from which darkness always runs, and that's Jesus. And in Jesus, there is life, and there is light. And both of those things are free gifts to you if you choose to receive His promise by repenting and believing in Him today, or any day, ever, because every time his name is spoken, darkness runs. And if you've never done that, please, like so much, talk to me, talk to any of our staff, probably talk to the person sitting next to you. Um, I want you to know life and to have light shine on you. In a chiastic flow, which is kind of a sideways tilted pyramid of like point, 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 major point, 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 Uh, that we see here from the rest of the book of John flows that in those that receive Jesus and believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Verse 12, But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born of God, right? If you receive Jesus and you believe in his name, You are not simply permitted into his presence as a servant or a guest. Rather, you are eternally welcomed into the house of God as his own son or daughter. This is good news, right? Amen? Amen. Okay, so we're going to come out of these theological woods now, and we're going to shift gears. We're going to go to John chapter 4. So turn there. So this glorious God, full of grace and full of truth that became flesh and lived on this earth and is the sole provider of the right to become a child of God, how is that grace and that glory and that truth and that right to become a child of God, how do I receive that? Or how is that shared with somebody? How is it that we're all here right now? I'm glad you asked, guys. Thanks so much. So John chapter 4. We're going to do 31 through 41 verses, so I'm going to catch you up from verse 1, so listen super fast. 
Right? In John chapter 4, we have the story of the woman at the well. Here, Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They come to a town named Sakkar. It's in Samaria, where Samaritans and Jews, they don't get along. They're not best buddies. Uh, they come to get some food because they're tired, right? The Word became flesh. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human, so he's tired because they've been traveling a lot. He says, guys, go get some food. I'm going to lean against this well and rest. A lady from town, she comes out to the well uh, to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. The woman is shocked that he asked her for one, because one, she's a Samaritan, and Samaritans and Jews, no, 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 they don't get along. Two, she's a woman. Both of these things are culturally unacceptable at the time, especially given the time of day that it is, uh, that the woman is coming out, because she's coming out when no other woman come out to get water, because she's had five husbands, and she's living with one that she's not married to, and she's ashamed. So she comes out to get water separate from all the other women. In the midst of their conversation, Jesus tells the woman that he gives living water. That this living water that he gives of, it makes people never thirst again. And it wells up into eternal life. So Jesus calls her out on those hidden sins that she thinks nobody knows. And he tells her that he is the promised Messiah, the one who is called the Christ. Having told her these things, she drops her buckets, she drops everything that she had. And she runs back into town, into Sakaar, to tell everybody. And this is where we pick up in verse 31. So I'm going to read for us, okay? Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So here we see it. Here we see Jesus. That Jesus lived to accomplish his mission what he calls the will of the Father, a.k.a. the glory of God through the redemption of humanity. And D.A. Carson, a theologian and professor of New Testament studies, says, If in his dealings with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing his Father's will, there was greater sustenance and satisfaction in that than in any food the disciples could offer him. Indeed, all of Jesus' ministry is nothing other than submission to and performance of the will of him who sent him. Once the cross is firmly in view, Jesus can pray, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do in John 17, 4. So Jesus is dependent on the Father and that the Father's will and work is food for him. He's actually hungry for it. He's craving its accomplishment. And if we are to emulate Jesus in all that we do, and if his mission is to bring God glory through the redemption of humanity, can I say and can you say that we are to take part and have an active role in that mission? Absolutely. Absolutely we are. And we see that in verse 35 when Jesus attaches this to his own disciples. And we have to remember that this food that Jesus is saying, I have food to eat, it's much more than a corn dog. I mean, he's not saying, somebody gave me a sandwich. These are cosmic and eternal realities. The ones that we opened with in John chapter 1, 
that the word became flesh, that there's a mission here to make people children of God. So this old proverb that Jesus mentions, uh, he makes the point, although sowing and reaping were separated by a minimum of four months, that his coming has ushered in an end time harvest where sowing and reaping, they'll go hand in hand. They're a joyous work together. Paradoxically, they'll coincide. This is the ushering in of a prophecy made back in Amos. Amos 9.13, that the sower and the harvester would be on equal ground doing the same work. And what is that work? It's the joyous work of sowing, harvesting. What's being sown? What's being harvested? Or what's being sown? The gospel. Right? The gospel's being sown. The work of the Father through Jesus. Eternal salvation and the free gift to become a child of God. What's being harvested? People. People are being gathered, are being harvested. Jesus says in verse 36 that this is a joyous work. Can there be anything more joyous than attaching yourself to an active relationship and an active mission with God, with Jesus the Savior, the one that came and lived and went through the crucifixion for your sins and mine, the same thing Tim preached on last week? No. That's the greatest thing in the world, to get your nourishment from doing God's mission. I mean, look at verse 35, when Jesus, he's telling his disciples, I want you to do this with me. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, guys. The field is white for harvest. There's lots of work to do here. There's plenty of food. Friends, has anything changed? In 2,000 years, has anything changed? The fields are white for harvest. If I've been to your small group lately, you've heard me talk about this, but friends, there's 2.2 million people in Kansas City, greater Kansas City metro area. 80% of those are far from God. They don't believe in God. They don't care about Jesus. Don't care. Maybe they've probably never even heard don't assume that just because someone knows the name Jesus means that they know the gospel, because they don't. So that leaves 20% of us, right? There's 1.76 or so million lost people far from God in Kansas City. 20% of us say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I look to Jesus as my Savior, that he redeemed me from my sins, and I have assurance of my salvation. Of that 20%, so 100% of believers in Kansas City, 2% of us have shared this message. Salvation through Christ. The work that he done. The gospel. 2% of us have shared that in the last 12 months. Explicitly saying, here's the gospel. Receive this. Do you want to follow this with me today? Of 100% of believers in Kansas City, 2% of us share in the last 12 months. How long is it going to take for us to reach 1.76 million people with the gospel at that rate? Really really, really long time. Jesus never said that there was a problem with the harvest. Never did. He did say that there's a problem with the workers. There's not enough. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? They're few. Will we be the ones that say, ah, there's a problem with the harvest. They don't want to hear this. They don't have time for this. Or will we, or even worse, will we be the ones that say, Man, those great truths from John chapter 1, boy, they fill me up. But not enough for it to overflow. Not enough for me to share eternity with someone else. 
Let that not be the case. See, Jesus, he attached his mission of bringing glory through the redemption of humanity to his disciples here. And also, if he meant what he said in Matthew 28, that all authority has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do what? To obey all that I have commanded. Not just know. It's great to know, right? It's great to know things. It's great to know God. It's great to be in active relationship with God. But God says, I want you to obey. We want to obey. If he meant that, this mission of harvesting is for me, and it's for you. And in the words of Edward Clink, a commentator on the book of John, he said, the disciples had gone to a Samaritan village to buy food, when instead they should have gone there to provide it. We have a lot of food, guys. We have a lot of food. We want to provide it. I brought, worship team, you guys can come up. I brought with me something here. The tattooed guy is going to brandish a deadly weapon on stage. So, awkward. So, this is a Sith uh, or a sickle. Uh, this is one of the most ancient tools used in farming uh, that we know of. Old Testament all the way through, even Revelation tells us that at the end time, Jesus will put in his sickle and gather all of his harvest. This is what that analogy refers to, or that truth. I don't know. That'd be a big sickle and it'd be scary, but this is what uh, it says that we'll use. So when Jesus says, enter into the harvest and reap, I sent you to reap verbatim. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do. And the way these things work is you, I watched some YouTube videos on this, by the way, and these things are efficient. Uh, there's a guy that plowed a field faster with this than a brush hog. I don't, that has nothing to do with my sermon, but they're just, they work. So you put them in and you just, just in the harvest, mowing down fields, right? And I wonder, Will we be a church that says, I have this sickle. Jesus has called me to use it. I'm supposed to be in the harvest, reaping what I have not sown. Because God does the work, guys. And will we stand here with our sickle and think, boy, I hope the wind blows hard enough for a stem of wheat to hit it. As I stand on the side of this harvest, or will we enter into that harvest and do what our king has commanded us? The only way we're going to reach Liberty, Missouri and reach the world is if we're all willing to do that. That the gospel will go from these walls, not stay contained within it. Friends, I want that to happen. May the glory of God, that you are a child of God, burn like a fire inside of you. That you have nothing else that you can do but to share that glory with others. Not for your sake, because you are saved, right? for the sake of the world that they may know this king and that they may experience life and light now and into eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's praise him.